Welcome to the podcast Imaginations and Cancellations. My name is Ali Nazari and in front of me is sitting Professor Dr. Frans Willem Korsen, the person who wrote the book that this podcast is based on. Every episode we tackle a chapter of the book and try to understand the city through vectorizing sensibilities, which is the way that our feelings and senses are steered by how cities are presented. Each episode we will have two cities as a case study so we can understand the topics even better. This episode we will be talking about generic forms of meaning and the inexpressible in the cities Jerusalem and Hiroshima. So today's cities are Jerusalem and Hiroshima. Mm -hmm. And let's start with Jerusalem because it's it's a city with a lot of meanings and a lot of symbols for many different people. So... Um, how would the allegory play out in Jerusalem? Because it's not inexpressible. It's mm-hmm. very expressible. Uh, we can take a lot out of it. How How is the allegory playing out in Jerusalem? Uh, you're spot on in saying that uh, an allegory is an expression. But it's an expression that tries to express something by saying something else. That's the allos in allegory which is also why people have uh, considered the allegory as a genre, a form of organization based on metaphor, right? So in a a metaphor as well, we we say something and with that saying, we express something else. So if the real meaning of Jerusalem, if, if it would have a real meaning, is inexpressible, then people can, can take their refuge in allegory uh, which is like some sort of a detour in trying to say what a city means. And the detour is aesthetically shaped. So an allegory is a narrative form or, or it is an image that is in itself attractive and through that attraction then tries to express a meaning that is not the literal meaning. So if we would think of Jerusalem in a literal sense, then let's say Jerusalem would be like any other city. There's strange things happening as soon as people arrive in Jerusalem. Somehow, they think they feel that this is an important city. They might even go mad there. Is that the city itself? Or is that the way in which it has been charged for centuries, even millennia, with certain ways of speaking about it, as a result of which people think it holds a secret? Not just think it, they feel it. And through these allegories then, Uh, Jerusalem has been charged with such deep meanings and feelings that people would give their life for that city. That's remarkable, right? So what what wouldn't you want to give? So I've I've tried this out in in classes that I would ask, who would want to give his life for for the city that he lives in or where he was born? No one. But that's not the case for Jerusalem and some other important cities as well. (coughs) So the allegory, in a sense, takes a detour to, to get to this deeper meaning or deeper feeling. I don't like the the phrase deep meaning actually that much because it seems as if we have to dig and then we find the deep meaning. I think it's more the case that meanings can become charged, intense, intensified, multiplied, consisting of many layers. And I think that's the case with Jerusalem. You just said that you asked in class how many people would give their lives for the city they were born in, but I think Jerusalem is more different than a, just the city you live. It has a deeper meaning for a religion. Mm-hmm. And I think religion is then has somehow more meaning to people than 
maybe the place they inhabit, and that's why they they would give their lives. Okay, so that's, that's that's a good point. So indeed, uh, Jerusalem is at the heart of three major beliefs, religions: okay. yeah. Judaism, Christianity, Islam. That in itself is already remarkable. There's no other city in the world <laughs> that has that same kind of meeting of three major religions. Uh, but perhaps you also remember that when we were talking about uh, Mumbai, we started in another city, Ayodhya, which is where um, Hindu radicals destroyed a mosque because they said this was the birthplace of a Hindu god, and as a result of which they wanted a temple to be built there. So this would be another example of how religion involves many intensities in in what people hold to be true, what they think forms the key to their lives. Indeed, it's not just that you live in Jerusalem. Somehow, Jerusalem holds the key to your belief, and that belief is again related to all aspects of life. So if uh, Jerusalem is connected to three major religions, then there's a multiplicity of feelings attached to that city, and not just feelings, but feelings of, this is what I need, this is what my religion needs, this is at the heart of what I believe in. And maybe the believing is more than just one day a week going to church or like Absolutely, mosque. yeah. It's the core of a being, yep. maybe. Yep. So then you're not fighting for what you believe, but your whole entity, your yep. whole... Self. True. Yeah, in in a book that I just uh, recently published called Culture Interactions, I try to define culture. Uh, and that's where I make a difference between the idea that people have a culture or that they live a culture. And my suggestion is that they live a culture, which means that that culture is indeed at the core of their being. And religion is is part of that or can even intensify that so that we have, a let's say, a coincidence of religion and culture. And then it becomes... Everything that defines your life, that form. And then Jerusalem, of course, as a form also, as a, not just as a city you live in, but as a, as a, as a, f- as a form you are attached to, uh, becomes uh, yeah, the pivot of many aspects of life. The allegory itself has four functions. It has coded messages in them. It solves complex differences. Mm-hmm. And it repairs fractures or inconsistencies and it translates the empire yeah which is the last one is basically i think correct me if i'm wrong but you're giving an explanation somehow as to why there is some certain political power or isn't that the case that's the case so how how power is translated yeah so so if rome is first at the center of the roman empire then augustine at some point proposes that Christianity should appropriate that city, but for a different kind of empire. But, but what's happening then is a translation of, of one form into another. So Rome stays, in a sense, the same, but it becomes the, the, the core of another power, where it was first the major center for the Roman Empire. It becomes the major center for Roman Catholicism. So we have two powers, and in a sense then, two Romes. Because, I mean, you can say the city stays the same, but it, but it's not the same city. So in a sense, we have two Romes, yeah. and one is being seen in the light of the other. And then being ex- translated. Translated, yeah. 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 The other function that I was very interested in was the second and third, to solve complex differences and meanings and repairing f- uh, fractures, mm-hmm. um, which is applied to 
the plague. A plague in, I don't know when exactly? 14th century. 14th century. But but it would stay in Europe for, for at least the two, three, four centuries. So, mm. so it, it didn't go away. So, for instance, in, I believe, 1666, you had an enormous uh, plague attack in, in London, mm-hmm. uh, which coincided with an enormous fire. So... Uh, I mean, 1666. Yeah, that's uh, the devil's number, yeah, right? Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I, I'll check whether that's correct, but that's but I think it's uh, I believe it was 1666. I'll look it up while we're talking. So I mean, if if that's the case, that was my next point. That's how they, I mean, this big plague. If God loves us, why does He send this plague? Yeah. So yeah, that's spot on. So um, if if a uh, yeah, it's it's 1666, 1665, 1666, yeah. So uh, even the, that number in itself uh, provokes almost uh, fears and anxieties and the attempt to give it meaning. Mm-hmm. So if if you are truly, let's say, uh, purely, if you t- take a look at that, like purely scientifically, it's it's a it's a, an explainable disease. But also with uh, when COVID struck, there were loads of people trying to find other meanings in it. Exactly, <laughs> which could which could be conspiracy theories, right? So uh, that it was made in a laboratory and not in China, but in America or someplace else. Uh, but there were also people again who considered it to be, let's say, a punishment from a god, what have you. So uh, people are confronted then with a with a reality that is so shocking that they think this must have a meaning. Mm-hmm. This must have another meaning than what it simply seems to be. So there as well, you'd have an allegory, yes. Or the other way around, when something very good happens. Yeah. Oh, God's <laughs> wanted me to, That's or true. my prayers yeah. have yeah. been. Yeah. So any any heard. kind of uh, athlete who thanks God for his or her success is, in a sense, also doing that. That's true. One thing we talked about in I think one of the first podcast, one of the first episodes, was seeing the city as a virgin, mm-hmm. and we have uh, Babylon which is being seen as a harlot. Right. This is the complete opposite of it. Mm-hmm. Then I wonder, so it's defenseless? Is that the meaning of it, if it's a harlot? Or is it just like, so, how would you say that, perverted? In this case, there's two different options of viewing the city. So if it's a virgin, it's it's untouched, it needs to be protected. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other option of looking at cities is that they have by many people and in many times have been considered as a pool of sin uh, because people do all sorts of things in the city and 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 they've they've lost the, their true lives and they they live wrongly that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um, so Babylon as a harlot is is from the Bible uh, and connected to perhaps let's say competitions between religions so if you would have in Babylon certain practices, religious practices, in which you would have a priestess uh, with whom you could have sex. Within that religion, that would be normal mm-hmm. and the thing to do. Now, there's other religions that, that base themselves on a patriarchal male sovereign figure within at the, at the heart of a patriarchal order in which men are supposed to decide how life should be lived and women should be uh, silent and obedient in the competition between these religions, you would consider, let's say, the option of Babylon to be evil, mm-hmm. right? It would go against anything you'd want. So the, the if we talk about factorization of sensibilities, this is an important one. 
right? That that you start to define another city not as a, as a, as an equally honorable or, or worthwhile place to live in, but as a bad place. Mm-hmm. And in in our times, Babylon was taken up as another symbol of another metaphor for uh, for instance for New York as a as a center of capitalism, with capitalism being the bad force exploiting people, allowing some to leave to live in enormous luxury and others in poverty. So that trope is traveling and means different things in different times. But in all cases, Babylon as a harlot has become a trope that tries to uh, to emphasize that a city is bad. Oh, Babylon itself has become a trope, right? If it's you say true. this yeah, place yeah, is yeah. like Babylon, it's like, yeah. oh yeah, it's a yeah. bad place. Yeah. Uh, Jerusalem, on the other hand, has been compared to a lonely widow. Mm-hmm. She has lost everything. And Hiroshima the last city, is an open city, mm-hmm. has been an open city in the Second World War. So uh, they were not allowed to attack it, am I correct? Well, that's that's difficult. Uh, so you had cities in the Second World War who, that declared themselves to be open cities. So so in a sense, you could give a, an, an explicit message to, to the enemy to say, we are an open city, we are defenseless, mm-hmm. which means don't bombard us, mm-hmm. right? Uh, the Japanese never did that. But you could argue, if a city is not defending itself, it is by implication an open city, right? So if a city is not a fortress and and, and not, let's say, uh, at, uh, are hiding all sorts of, of, of weapons, then you could say it is an open city. And and the perversity in the case of Hiroshima is that, that uh, the Americans had not bombarded it ever to keep it, as they said, a pristine city, which mm-hmm. is in relation to, let's say, the uh, metaphor of the Virgin already a telling term, pristine city, untouched. And they wanted that to show the force of this one atom bomb. So by defining it as a pristine city and not attacking it earlier, in a sense, they, they also implied that this was a city that was defenseless. Mm-hmm. So uh, it wasn't declared to be an open city, but you could argue that it was an open city and then it was destroyed in one second. This bomb, this atomic bomb, mm-hmm. has also made Hiroshima inexpressible. Um, as in, the this traumatic in- event is very un- inexpressible. It's not mm-hmm. like the city is inexpressible, the event yeah. is inexpressible, because they knew mm-hmm. what could happen, like um, with numbers and how many uh, buildings could have been destroyed. But what actually happened was very inexpressible. So, so Hiroshima in itself, uh, I would say, is, has become a symbol, mm-hmm. a symbol for that destruction. That's the expressive part. But the impact, uh, the event indeed of the of the, the the bomb exploding, remains up until today inexpressible. No one who has not been there knows what that means. So we can only touch upon it by forms of representation. Photographs, films, poems. In this case, what we deal with in this chapter is a comic book. All attempts to somehow touch a bit of how horrible that was. Mm -hmm. But things can be so horrible that they become inexpressible. That we can only start to stutter or only get so far in trying to represent what that was. Uh, And in the case of the Shoah, the the destruction of the Jews in, in Europe, there's even people saying... You should not represent it because it is unrepresentable. So 
there's people arguing if as soon as you start to represent it it becomes understandable and in that sense it, in that sense it becomes normal or it becomes normalized mm-hmm. So if you represent it, be very much aware of how far you claim you're going to get in trying to capture what really happened. So whereas with uh, Jerusalem, we are talking in a sense about the inexpressibility of what that city means. And with Hiroshima, we're talking about the inexpressibility of how it was torn apart in one blow. You could also say that cases like uh, the attack on Hiroshima and the Holocaust actually should be represented because it's not a warning but i think a representation of how bad it was and the survivors of hiroshima could say like do do not use an atomic bomb as a warning because mm-hmm. you don't know what can happen and it's horrible what can happen yeah yeah that's so y- that's right so you have to try to represent it yeah like uh, art spiegelman did with with mouse trying to represent uh, the showa in terms of a almost a fable with all human beings as animals, uh, the Jews as mice and, and the Germans as cats. And in the case of of uh, the comic that we're looking at with Hiroshima, so the nice, or the, the interesting thing about a comic is that it, it's a low genre, right? So it's, it's not a genre that's highly valued. It's more children genre, although, of course, by now it is a, it, it's, it's been read by, by many adults as well. But I think the comic works so well because... It doesn't claim to be serious, and precisely as a result of that, it can kind of hit you in an unexpected way, right? So if we have, let's say, a serious piece or a serious film or what have you, you already go there, let's say, with uh, the expectation, oh, this is going to be deep, this is going to be tough, this is going to be serious. And if you pick up a comic book, you think, that's nice, well, nice story, and then suddenly there's this bomb that ruptures in a sense, the entire, uh, perhaps, innocence of a comic. So that's, uh, that's I think, uh, why the comic can, can work so well in this context. I was wondering that, because it's a very colorful, well, it can be a very colorful way. There's images, mm-hmm. drawing, it's drawn. Mm-hmm. But then the fact that you don't expect it mm-hmm. makes it very, can have a very big impact. Yeah, that's so that's that's precisely uh, I think what what the aesthetic potential is there, right? So that mm-hmm. you step into a story about a child. It's it's a nice life. It's drawn, seems to be innocent, and then suddenly it's it's smashed. Mm-hmm. So the the smashing force of an atom bomb, in a sense, then is 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 aesthetically captured by by rupturing a genre, in a sense. Mm-hmm. I think that's also how comedy works. Weirdly, if you go to a comedy show. You think, I'm going to a comedy show, sure. Yeah. so you're already mentally preparing, like, okay, I'm going to laugh. So every yeah. mediocre joke is very funny. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there has been, like, a lot of TED Talks about very serious matters. And then you do not expect a joke, but when a joke is being made during a serious TED Talk, you yeah. laugh ten times harder. Yeah. And it is funnier. Or if, if we take the example of, of comedy, a stand-up comedian somehow, and we've been laughing for half an hour, and then he or she says, okay, let's talk about suicide. I think there would be a silence. Yeah, of course. Some, some nervous laughter. But if someone would really start to talk about suicide, he would turn upside down all the expectations that we have. Maybe if you say, if you're coming out of like a, a half an hour of laughter and then saying, okay, let's talk about suicide, I think at that sentence people will still laugh. Yeah. 
because they think... I think so. Yeah, that's true. And then eventually after a couple sentences, people will notice like, oh no, he or she's actually being serious. Yeah. And in this case, if we talk about this uh, this comic th that, that depicted the uh, Hiroshima bomb, it's well done. I haven't well. read it. So, no, so it's, it's really well done. So you're drawn into the story and it and and um the important thing here I think is that it it's also a matter of investment so you stick you stick with the characters. Mm -hmm. So then it's not oh yeah at atom bomb Hiroshima that was bad. No. It's it's precisely because you st you you stay with the characters and mm -hmm. also let's say the after effects of an atom bomb which is something else again so let's say an entire city is destroyed with one blow but there's enormous after effects of radiation and, and the horrible wounds that people have. So staying with the characters in this sense is also important because there's these long after effects. Mm. The w warnings, like yeah. why you shouldn't do it. Right. Yeah, I shouldn't. wonder, Annie, so there's many people saying if we show how horrible it was, it won't happen again. Mm. But Wish we're peop that people were so kind of... Uh, but... Okay, uh, I'm I'm thinking about the Armenian genocide right now, right? Because yeah. I'm Armenian. Armenian genocide happened, and there were not a lot of people that were talking about it. Then Hitler gave a speech about, oh, nobody remembers the Armenians, so I can go on with the Jews. Mm -hmm. And that has been an impact for many Armenians, but also others, to talk about these matters, to say... It actually did happen, and we mm -hmm. should talk about it. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it will happen again. Mm -hmm. If media doesn't cover it, this stuff will continue to happen again. I think you're right there. So, yes, of course, we should be talking about these kinds of things, and perhaps not just for a couple of years, but for decades or centuries. So if we take another example, the destruction of Native Americans mm -hmm. or the indigenous peoples living in on a continent that was not called America yet. Still, it is. this is an unsolved issue. Mm -hmm. Perhaps also because there have been no real apologies, perhaps. I don't think you can solve it with an apology. No, no I think so. No, there's, there's certainly not. There's, there's things that, are, that cannot be solved. Uh, but if we're talking about the inexpressible, this has an analogy in... It can never be solved. It was so bad, it was so horrible, that it cannot be solved. You might say, in an ultimate phase, there would be forgiveness. So from the other side, so to speak. Then again, perhaps that's uh, one of the major characteristics of, of the human animal, that it does so many things that the idea that we can really solve these kinds of traumas is is uh, perhaps also a bit silly. Mm -hmm. We just believe that it won't happen again. Yeah. Like we can't be that bad. <laughs> like, yeah. Come on. No, no, actually, that, I, don't, I, don't think, I don't think that we, uh, as, as, as the human animal, are that bad. Actually, I think there's also a, a book uh, in Dutch that, all that the claims... People. Yeah. All the people? Yeah. Yeah. All, all people are, in a sense, uh, decent or good or something like yeah, that. Yeah, all people yeah. are decent, yeah. Rutger yeah. Bregman. Um, but I've read that book as well. He, he skips something. He skips the force in collective entities. If we now, let's say, perhaps wrap it up, there's nation states, there's organizations, there's corporations, there's beliefs. And these are systems that have their own propelling force. Um, so if all people individually are actually 
pretty decent and, and good. As soon as you put them into an organization that asks something from them, they might, they might start to act pretty badly. So if you put people in an army or, or in a cult or, or a belief or a nation state, they might at some point start to believe that that nation state is at, at the core of their existence. They might want to fight for that nation state, which is a very, very strange thing, right? So it's, what is the nation state? It's, it's a fiction. And nevertheless, millions of people, millions of people have by now died because of these fictions. So uh, this would be a, a, a thing to correct his analysis. He skips the fact that there are organizations that may change the behavior of not just one person, but of millions of people. This concludes this episode. This was also the last episode of this podcast. Hopefully you got some useful insight and enjoyed our conversations. Now, like always, thank you for listening and keep imagining.